This is W-O-W-D-L-P, Tacoma Park. Love is a rose, but you better not pick it. It only grows when it's on the vine. Handful of thorns and you know you've missed it. Lose your love when you say the word mine. And this is the Artist Experience Radio Show. As artists, we have a unique mission to bring to you, our listeners, the pleasure of learning about art, the brightening, the awareness, and the enrichment, and more than anything, its relevance to our daily lives. We live in a city of great museums. We have an embarrassment of riches. And even though you can listen to us and look our images at our images posted on our Artist Experience Facebook page, There's nothing like being in the presence of art, the paint, the stone, the metal, the size, the scale, the encounter with the artists who made this for us to experience. We hope that you'll use our show as a way of investigating art and as a springboard for your encounter with the real thing. Good morning. Today we'll continue our series on painters in the garden with a group of very enigmatic artists and their work of botanical subjects from the garden. But first, Sheila, I'd like to discuss the passing of a great American artist in Charles Thomas Close, otherwise known as Chuck Close. Chuck Close was a visual artist in the realms of painting and photography, and he was from Washington State and he was born in 1940, and he just passed this week at the age of 81. I think it's safe to say that Chuck Close revolutionized and revitalized art in the areas of portraiture, photorealism, and in the phenomenon of optical mixing or blending. His work broke the boundaries of scale in portraiture and inventive ways of addressing photorealism with photographs and the scientific and painstaking approach to painting using optical mixing. In 1988, Chuck Close suffered an incredible medical event when a major spinal artery collapsed, leaving him paralyzed from the neck down. He has spoken openly about the situation, even wrote a book about the, the event, as he calls it. His entire life was altered, and he had to learn to paint in a wheelchair with loads of help from technology and helpers in his studio. It put great stress on his life, and other medical issues set in, and such an event would change anyone, and he sought refuge in his studio's on Long Island. Sheila, what do you think uh, about Chuck Close's legacy in the visual arts will be? Hmm. 
I've always been glad that Chuck Close had so many admirers, so I didn't have to be one. Oh, that's funny, <laughs> Sheila. He's only said the he's only said the nicest thing about you. You guilt tripper. <laughs> what he did was so repetitive. The early stuff, the black and white paintings were good. I once heard him say that he used a teaspoon of paint to paint a whole nine foot canvas with an airbrush. <laughs> That's incredible. <It's> true. <laughs> his first and still one of his best known paintings is a self-portrait where he stares back at the camera and he has on these black rimmed plastic glasses and he has messy stringy hair, his face is unshaved and cigarette smoke is rising, jets out of the corner of his mouth. A rebel with a new artistic cause. His black and white paintings of Philip Glass and uh, Florence are wonderful. They're, they're really amazing. They're huge faces. But to me, he had this one big idea, and he worked it for the rest of his life. That sure raises some questions about establishing a signature look and milking it for all he could get. And no one could do the same thing because he cornered the market on large heads. Very good, uh, Sheila. I have to say that self-portrait in the National Gallery is truly a masterpiece. Yes, I mean, I mean, no matter how you cut it. Well, yeah, when yeah, Chuck I Close did. hit the uh, New York art scene in 1967, he was surrounded by a host of artists in a variety of art circles. They soon became a subject in the interest of portraiture. Not only was the scale of the work huge, but the concepts of later technologies with the camera and the computer had his work looking pixelated. His technical preparations to the canvas were steeped in, in the technology of the times. His subjects were right there, famous portraits of painters like Alex Katz and Roy Lichtenstein, and photographers Cindy Sherman, Lorna Simpson, and Luca Samaras, and of course the musicians Lou Reed and Philip Glass. Yeah, that's another thing. When artists do portraits of the important people they're around, it's sycophantic flattery. It makes them look important to have important friends. It's a win-win. And as a bonus, just as we were saying about looking at photographs on our last show, you can get right up close and inspect Lou Reed's pores. Chuck Close developed a system. It was inspired by Solowit, who talked about letting the system do the work. I don't know if uh, we've talked much about Solowit, but he d would develop mathematical systems, simple ones, and then give them to other people to carry out. Yes, yes. I cool. didn't actually know he was so much dedicated to Saul LeWitt's groundbreaking work. Yeah, well, I didn't either. So this is, we always find out things doing the show. So Close repressed any hint of self-expression. He became like a riveter on an assembly line, or like his mother doing needlepoint, which he later likably claimed as a formative influence. Following Lewitt's idea that an artwork should be a logical outcome of a given set of rules, the idea is the machine that ma the machine makes the work. Close emphasized the importance of process over product. So in 1985, Close created a work that represents one of the largest and most masterly executions of the technique that the artist developed for himself which involves the direct application of pigment to the surface with the artist's fingertips. By adjusting the amount of pigment and his pressure, he used an ink pad, you know, that we used to use for stamp yeah, stamping? Yeah, sure. And, uh, he would, and so he would have just the right amount of, of pressure from the ink, from the ink pad, and he could create unbelievable contours of the face. Okay, so... If you're not familiar with Chuck Close's paintings, if you just see one painting on a wall, say in a museum, you see this enormous, what looks like a photograph of a head, just enormous. And you walk up and you, as you get closer, you see that it is made out of, out of well, now we would say pixels. I think that Chuck Close started doing this before things were being pixelated in the way they are now. Yeah. It used to be like the Bende dots in newspapers and what Roy Lichtenstein realized that you could blow up those Bende dots and create form out of 
simple dots. Well, I think a, a lot of our younger audiences might not be familiar with the Bende concept. Ah. The Bende concept is little dots of color, and either the closer together or bigger that they were, it created a darker value. Uh-huh. And Roy Lichtenstein, as you correctly say, revolutionized that as a pop artist. He was looking at the newspapers, and that created his dot paintings. But in, in some way, Chuck Close is doing it with his fingerprint uh-huh. to create the illusion by putting his thumb print into a pad of ink paper that you so correctly said. And by the pr- applying the pressure, the more pressure, the more ink on the, on the canvas, the darker it was. Uh-huh. So he could create the illusion of this huge portrait. But when you're standing back and you have to stand back from that portrait, a long ways, you don't realize that it's fingerprints. Right. You, it looks almost like a pixelated Bende painting or drawing in that sense. Right. So, so that's, that's why he created these unbelievable contours and forms of faces uh-huh. just using that revolutionary concept of a fingerprint mm-hmm. on an ink pa- from an yes. ink pad. Yeah. So I think that's, that's really a, a tribute to his inventiveness there. Yeah, and then later when he started filling each square, like a pixelated square, with a tiny abstract painting that had exactly the colors and the values that needed to be in that square. But if you look up close, each one is a tiny abstraction. Yeah. He's taking it further with color. The painting of his wife's late grandmother hangs at the Smithsonian National Gallery of Art. Seen from a distance, the painting looks like a giant silver-toned photograph that reveals every crack and crevice of the sitter's face. When you get closer, the paint surface dissolves into a sea of fingerprints that have an abstract beauty, even if they metaphorically suggest the writhing of the sitter's skin with age. The finger painting provides a far more literal record of the artist's touch than most abstract expressionist brushwork. So at the same time, they're dictated by an abstract distinctly distinctly impersonal situation. He was so successful in these gambits that curators who championed minimalist minimalist abstraction and who thought that figurative art was inherently passé were willing to set aside that fact because even though Close was still painting faces and people respond emotionally to the faces, they were He was given a pass, is what it was. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of the work was out of like touch in some some sort of the gallery scene. But yeah, he was given that. And he had a beautiful, gentle smile. And I admit to being fascinated by his early portraits. Okay. (laughs) Not so much later on. Well, what fascinates me about Chuck Close's very anally retentive work is his work in the optical blending and or optical mixing. Optical blending and mixing is a complicated physiological affair. Sheila, maybe one day we could do a whole show on that phenomenon in color theory because there's a lot of great artists that used it. Optical blending, basic and simply put, is when the brain mixes the colors for you when you look at the painting and the artist does not do it on the canvas for you, but places the colors next to each other to create the visual phenomenon of optical mixing or optical blending. This is a color and perception concept and it's difficult to explain, especially on the radio. But this is not an original idea at all. The ancient Greeks and Romans mastered this idea in their mosaic work when chips of colored tiles of different colors blended into each other when they were placed next to each other to create an illusion of form and distance. Byzantine mosaic artists mastered this centuries later on even a greater scale in forming optical mixing. Later, the French painter Eugène Delacroix would slash colors with his brush Two primary colors adjacent to each other would create the complementary color. For example, when yellow and red are placed next to each other, when you look at it from a distance, it creates an orange. This technique was also used by Vincent van Gogh, who was very much enamored with Delacroix. Of course, the painters 
Many of us know, and, and they took the science of optical blending to new heights, were the pointillists, who were also known as the divisionists. Pointillism or divisionism was spearheaded by none other than the great George Surratt, the French painter who wrote a treatise on the optical nature of color and the perception of color. The very short and tragic life of George Surratt has been memorialized in the wonderful Stefan Sondheim play Sunday Afternoon in the Park with George, which has been a Broadway hit for many, many years. Although the pointillists used dots of color or points of color from the French point, Chuck Close used shape colors to create his optical effects. Both techniques are very, very time-consuming and laborious to create such techniques. You must stand further back from the canvas to get these perceptual effects to work on the canvas when you apply the color with these various colors next to each other. So you have to kind of put it down, and then you got to go back and see if that mm-hmm. works. Mm-hmm. And that's a very time-consuming uh, process. Especially in a wheelchair. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you for mentioning that. Mm. Chuck Close revitalized these optical effects in painting, and it's something uh, that I will remember Chuck Close by. Well, a few years ago, I read an article about Chuck Close that he had gone completely off the rails. He filed for divorce from his wife after 43 years of marriage, and he disappeared for the winter to live virtually alone in a new apartment on Miami Beach and retreated from his summer friends to the crowded isolation of Long Beach. This is a quote, okay. Even when Close ventures into the city for a gallery opening these days, he would often turn up in some out- as some outlandish costumes in fabrics printed with giant starfish and sunflowers with lipstick smeared across his face and billowing extravagant scarves. So that's the end of the quote. And he generally made a pain in the ass of himself. He was very disinhibited and did inappropriate things which were part of his underlying medical condition. Later, he was diagnosed as frontotemporal dementia, which affects executive function. It's like a patient having a lobotomy. It destroys destroys that part of the brain that governs behavior and inhibits space instincts. And even after Drew's behavior became uncomfortably outrageous, he still had the most innocent, gentle smile. But this other interesting thing is that Chuck Close has said that he had face blindness. I have some of that, too. There are ways that the COVID break was so relaxing for me. If you can forget about the part about getting sick and possibly dying, it is that I saw so few people, and I didn't have to be in the grocery store trying to remember if that person coming toward me with a shopping cart is someone I know. And I also love drawing faces, trying so hard to make them look back at me. Well, you know, it's interesting because when um, Chuck Close came on the art scene, he was supposed to be one of the nicest guys in the art world. And he was very, very good with uh, the students he had before he hit New York. So the disease process of various forms of dementia and brain function are really painful for the person and all those around in his world. Well, if you've just joined us, you're listening to the Artist Experience radio program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3 FM. Today we're continuing on our series of The Art in the Garden, which is right here on WOWD Tacoma Radio every other Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. And we continue today with the painters of the garden, visual artists that have painted gardens and the products from the garden. We are choosing to talk about three artists that you might uh, know, and that, but they're not really known for their garden or flower paintings. Okay? Well, one of the artists in the clique of Chuck Close in the New York art scene in the 1960s, who actually just died six years ago at the age of 92, was Ellsworth Kelly. Kelly was known for his bold, colored, geometric works, but he's also ventured into products of the garden. So this is a perfect segue between Chuck Close and our garden series programs today. When I first saw the drawings of Ellsworth Kelly plant and flower works, I was blown away with their line quality, and I really enjoyed these works Mm. so much. Oh, they're so beautiful. Ellsworth Kelly's paintings are about shape and color. They're non-objective. They don't have a subject. The subject is themselves. But the perfectly refined shapes of the canvas with one or two 
maybe three shapes within the canvas. There's no brushwork. There's there's no subject. There's simple, perfect color. But along his whole life, Kelly drew, and he drew from plants especially. One of the most basic drawing exercises that you learn as a, as a beginning art student is contour drawing. Sometimes it's called blind contour drawing. I'm going to describe it to you. The student sits close to the model and focuses on any point on the model. The pencil is actually on the paper, but you concentrate until you actually believe that the pencil is touching the model. And then slowly, you move your eye along the model and move the pencil slowly. It's actually on the paper, but you be, you believe that it's on the model. And when you come to the end of the contour, you pick up the pencil and put it on another part of the model. You never look at the paper. You always feel that you are touching the model with your pencil. This is a perfect exercise. And after you've done it a lot, you get a better sense of how far to move the pencil and it becomes incorporated into the way you draw. So, and it just might become the way you draw, which was how Ellsworth Kelly drew. Drawing, drawing this way is absolutely the way to accuracy. You get better at it, you learn to observe. You take away the stage that you that you look, you know, when you're drawing, you look, you memorize, and you transfer that memory to the paper. There's no transfer. Gauguin, Calder, O'Keefe, Matisse, Demuth, Hokusai, they were the most excellent contour drawings, and so was Ellsworth Kelly. So throughout his whole life, he continued this drawing practice, and his plants have the symbolist essence of the plant. Even though his paintings weren't plants, his sensitivity of line and shape stems from his drawing practice. And sometimes, once he was removed from the plant, he would take like a dozen drawings and synthesize in them into one perfect drawing. I would like to address three things that I think when I see these botanical drawings by Ellsworth Kelly. The first is their simplicity. To make something beautiful sometimes as an, uh, sometimes as an artist, you know, it's hard, and you want to keep it simple. And Ellsworth Kelly is leaning on the visual power of a simple external contour. And they used to say, keep it silly. Uh, no, keep it simple, silly, right? <laughs> well, we used to say another word instead of simple, but keep it simple, silly. And we call it the KISS idea to design, K-I-S-S. Secondly, I want to address is what I call sensual line. The sensuality of line in the West was revolutionized by artists like Michelangelo and Raphael, two of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, by the way. And these artists could take a line and carry you along this drawing with that same line as it became thick and thin and dark and light. So they, that, that very line was, was changing along its line length. Ellsworth Carley does not do it to the extent, but there is a sensuality to it. In the artists of the East and calligraphers, you do have a sense of sensuality in their lines as well. And thirdly, I'd like to address the lyrical quality of the line. The lyrical line is an expressive line that you can modulate, flow, and it's like fluid in its visual nature, and you often see this in calligraphic line as well. And I get some of that also from Ellsworth Kelly. Mm -hmm. if, if any of you listeners have, like my daughter, said that they can't draw, I would say anyone can draw. I totally agree with that. Oh, thank you. Good. Try this exercise. Get a nice sharp pencil and some paper and put a coffee cup in front of you and follow my instructions. Or better, look up contour drawing on the internet. I know that now it's popular to take art classes online. Learning to draw in this way, this exercise in contour drawing, is all about developing your sense of touch. Online, you have no relationship to the most important qualities of what you're drawing, the substance, the sensuality, the weight, the volume. There's a wonderful book that was written about 80 years ago called The Natural Way to Draw by Camon Nicolaides. Forget about Zoom classes. Learn to draw. 
Sheila, you've given our listeners a huge uh, lesson. Uh, I forgot to mention in, in uh, a few minutes ago when you talked about how to create a, a, a contour drawing and a blind contour drawing. That's a lot of free lessons on <laughs> on WOWD yeah. Tacoma Radio. <laughs> Stay on Thank you for that. And also, The Natural Way to Draw is, is, is a classic text by Kimo Nicolaides on, on drawing. It's just, it's, it's a great book. I mean, mm-hmm. it's worth it. You can get it for dirt on, on, <laughs> if you go, go online and buy. Great advice, and thank you. I really agree with all that Sheila has just spoken about. The next artist I'd like to talk about is Emile Nolde. Nolde was and is a highly enigmatic and maligned artist, and many controversies have surrounded his life. When I was a student in art history, I was fascinated by his strange and puzzling works of biblical subjects. Many of his works from the Old and New Testament were crudely yet passionately executed. They were dark and mysterious and very expressive. Naldi was born in 1867, what was then the Kingdom of Prussia. He was a painter and a printmaker, and he was born on the Danish side of the German Denmark border, as they share borders, and his parents were devout Protestants, and they also had a background in arts and crafts and woodworking. In addition to these religious-themed works, there are many, many paintings of flowers, and that's what I want to talk about today. Noldi was part of two revolutionary art movements at the time. First, he was the member of the group The Bridge, or Der Bruck, in 1906, and then he was partly associated with the Blue Rider, also known as Der Blau Rider, about 1912. Many famous artists like Kirchner and Heckel were associated with the bridge. Kandinsky, Franz Marc, August Mach, Munter were also famous artists that were associated with the Blue Rider. These are some hot revolutionary artists going at it in uh, Europe at the time. His life story, of, and this I'm talking about Emil Noldi, is marred in a host of fanatical rhetoric which encapsulated his times. And here's where his story gets really ugly. Noldi was a supporter of the German National Socialist Workers' Party, which was vis-a-vis the Nazis, and he was openly critical of Jewish gallery owners of the day, and his anti-Semitism was not a secret. He was also considered that it was. He also considered that the art forms that he was creating and the other Germans were were purely German, and he was not happy that the only galleries that would show this kind of work were predominantly owned by Jews. So he had kind of like a double whammy of anti-Semitism there. Although he shared the same sentiments of the Nazis of his day, he was not known then that he was a Nazi at all. Well, when Adolf Hitler's tirade began in the, regi- in the regimes of degenerate art crusades, Emil Nolde's work was ironic- ironically in the group labeled Degenerate. His works were included in the Degenerate Art Exhibition hosted by the Nazis in 1937. He appealed to have his work removed from the exhibition, but to no avail. He was, in fact, a degenerate artist. As a, as a, you know, that's what the Nazis thought anyway. He was unable to paint for four years, and he said that the Nazis confiscated about 1,052 works by Emil Noldi. Now, that's quite a body of work to be destroyed. In that period, he began to paint hundreds of flower paintings hidden and in secret. His works were filled with color and expression and very different than his body of work before the rise of Nazism. His work had become in disfavor, and the prices of work had plummeted since, now that his Nazi affiliations have been known. Many of his works as well uh, have also been involved in Nazi looting. Now, this is an interesting twist, too. So many of his works were, in fact, stolen by the Nazis from their legitimate Jewish owners. So it's just another part of the story that gets ugly. After the nationalist socialist rule... Uh, that was imposed on Noldi, which was, they did that to Noldi around 1941. Of course, the Nazi rule went on to much later. Noldi wrote, 
and this is a quote, his, t- his tied hands were again freed. At first, a few garden pictures with large and glowing poppies in order to get accustomed to colors again. Noldi had a large garden full of flowers, and this might have helped him through the creative confusion in a world that was so chaotic and confused at the time. Mm. At, I had read that at some point in his early years, Nolde painted a watercolor, and it was small, and it was vibrant, and really expressive. Yes, that's right. And he put it on his desk, and that was many years before he could do another, and that became sort of the basis of his late, wonderful paintings. And it's it's these paintings, his landscapes and flowers, that in my mind are his true artistic achievement. The question about what to love and appreciate in the work of an artist who is a terrible person, not just of his times, but of any times, is a really difficult question. Sometimes I can investigate an artist's work and see his character. And in Nolte's religious paintings, they were often reviled in his own time, so it's not difficult to see why he had this weird character. (laughs) Nolte's Bible becomes a grotesque graphic novel painted by a devout but conflicted soul. Stories that were designed to take the viewer to a higher spiritual plane are are brought by Noldi firmly down to earth. So uh, in his ecstasy painting of 1929, temptation comes to face to face with transcendence. It is, it is the figure bearing a cross and the nagging conscience of the brazen Mary Magdalene, is, is it that? Or is she defiantly exposing her flesh in rejection to, of possible redemption? Whatever the meaning, the real seduction here comes from the color, rich mauves and oranges that surround the startling figures. The spirituality that was so central to Knowles' identity is perhaps most visible, not in his biblical scenes, but in his ecstatic garden paintings and watercolor landscapes. Nolde once said that pictures are spiritual beings. The soul of the painter lives within them. These explosions, explosions of efflorescent color, especially those large red poppies, suggest that there is also a sense of a sense of beauty amid brutality in the soul of Emil Nolde. So how do we resolve this? Maybe it's not possible. Maybe that's why Nolde isn't nearly as known or prominent in the collections of American museums, while his fellow painter Vasily Kandinsky, the Russian, is in major major collections all over. The catalog of Nolde's paintings in American museums is 46 pages. It's a tiny 7 by 8 inch book that weighs a pound. In comparison, his artistic companion, at least in his early pre-war years, Kandinsky, has over 100 works in the Guggenheim Museum alone. And notice landscapes and flowers are so universal it would be difficult not to love them. Even just as a regular museum goer, but I'm I might be just conjecturing this because Americans don't seem to have any problem buying BMWs, even though the Nazis employed the Jews as their slave labor to keep their factories going. So I don't really know if the if the lack of no paintings in American museums is because of Americans' distaste for his Nazi roots, but I don't really know that. Mm. Nolde is not really that well known. Kandinsky, on the other hand, is reconciled, and there is the the connection between the artists and the paintings. Whereas Kandinsky's middle paintings are fabulous; they're full of color and movement. They're amazing, but there are years of his work that are practically impenetrable, and they're certainly not gorgeous. I surely can't resolve it, and maybe no one else can either. But Noldi remains an outsider and less popular to his German-European expressionist contemporaries. Oh, that's for sure. Um, Well, there's an important book that highlights solely his garden paintings. The book is titled Emile Nolde, My Garden Full of Flowers. And the paintings like Red Poppies, which is also called Red, 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 
is an explosive painting of powerful brushwork with varieties of reds, oranges, and red oranges uh, hues with a backdrop of clouds and dark scars fading to black at the bottom of the canvas. And this work is in oil. Many of these works give credence to the fact that Emile Noldi was a great watercolorist. He was also known to have a very simple palette, even using just basic primary colors and mixing them. The expression quality of these works are abundantly packed with vivid and pure color. Many art historians cite Noldi as inspirations for other artists of botanical subject, like Georgia O'Keeffe and even Mark Rothko. And additionally, Gustav Klimt's name surfaces in seeing these Emile Noldi flower paintings. We talked about the flower paintings of Gustav Klimt in a previous show on Painters in the Garden. Although Noldi painted flowers and gardens his entire year off and on, about 1942 he prolifically addressed this subject. But Noldi died in 1956, so he had 14 years to produce this huge body of flowers and oils and watercolors. Color was his expressive tool, as Sheila said, and Nolde saw the flowers as a great metaphor for human expression. In many ways, these flowers are figurative to Nolde, and all the human emotions that humans have were in these flowers as well. <clears throat> Emile Nolde was a prolific writer and note-taker. He writes, and Sheila mentioned it, that the soul of one's work is the study of the subject. Staring thousands of times at the same subject as Nolde did, you kind of take takes on a soul. And he was coincidentally an avid gardener, and he seasonally planted these flower gardens, and I thought this was cute, in the shape of a nay for his wife Ada, or the shape of a knee for a meal. He designed the gardens, and he actually designed the garden for his burial site uh, and that of his wife. In 1942, uh, Nolde wrote, There is a silver blue, sky blue, and thunder blue. Every color holds within it a soul, which makes me happy or repels me, and which acts as a stimulus. To a person who has no art in him, colors are colors, tones are tones, and that is all. All their consequences for the human spirit which reigns from between heaven and hell just go unnoticed. Interesting, and I think we're getting the character of, of this individual. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time ago Where have all the flowers gone? The girls have picked them, everyone Oh, when will you ever learn? Oh, when will you ever learn? Where have all the young girls gone? Long time passing Where have all the young girls gone Long time ago Where have all the young girls gone They've taken husbands, everyone Oh, when will you ever learn Oh, when will you ever learn? Where have all the young men gone? Long time passing. Where have all the young men gone? Long time ago. Where have all the young men gone? They're all in uniform, oh, when will we ever learn? Oh, when will we ever learn? If you just joined us, you're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio, 94.3 FM. 
Today, we are continuing our series on the art of the garden right here on WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3 FM. We have had several programs about this topic, and we continue today with a program about painters of the garden, visual artists that have painted gardens. There were painters who shared their incredible gardens with their friends. Tom, I want to talk about one artist, an American artist, Charles Birchfield, and contrast him with an artist that you're going to tell us about. In Redon. Redon. So um, when I was working in a bookstore in New York City, I was 17 years old, and I was getting ready to go to college, and my supervisor gave me a postcard of a painting by Charles Birchfield, who was her favorite painter because she knew that I was going to study art. And amazing, I still have it. That was a while ago. And now... When I was researching this show, I came across the same painting that's on the postcard, and it says, attributed to Birchfield. It may not have even been his painting, but oh well. I'll think hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) But it did turn me on to his work. According to Birchfield's friend and colleague, Edward Hopper, he said, quote, the work of Charles Birchfield is founded not on art, but on life, and the life that he knows and loves best. Birchfield has been more recently described as the mystic, cryptic painter of transcendental landscapes, trees with telekinetic halos, and haunted houses emanating ectoplasmic auras. Wow. That is really the truth. We're getting sci-fi here on the show. (laughs) They are. The first painting of his that I loved was of a screen door from the backyard And I promise I could hear the crickets and the dragonflies. It was completely alive with this noisy energy. And unlike Radon, that you're going to speak about, it was the dark side of the spirit. His paintings are of the most mundane, depressing places. Even the flowers are creepy. And they're alive as these beings. The trees have eyes and the butterflies are doing their crazy hovering dance. I mean, it is almost too much. At a certain point in the middle of Birchfield's life, while he was designing wallpaper in upstate New York, he was able to quit his day job, and his gallery was able to sell his work so he could support his wife and five kids and paint full-time. He and his subject became all the seasons, cold winter with outbuildings and barbed wire fences. He lived near Buffalo, New York, and summer... Well, there's not enough yellow and white to get it that hot, but he does. And he does hundreds of paintings. He developed a language of his own that communicated perfectly how the place feels. And I want to make the comparison with Redon. There's no way you can look at Birchfield's work and not indulge that menacing feeling like those delicious horror comics that I loved when I was a kid. I know that Birchfield has written extensively and kept journals, none of which I've read. And I'm sure when I do, I'll be embarrassed that I took such a lowbrow take on his work. But I am taking a break to love his work without being deep or analytical or worried that I've gotten it wrong. Look for yourselves. He's just terrific. Well, thank you for mentioning something, because I think you you did hit on something that I always thought of when I looked at a Charles Birchfield painting is that he elicits sounds oh in his work. Gosh, uh, I mean, the crickety fence that's hit yeah. by the wind yeah. or the opening door of the screen door, or even thunder and lightning yes. or the falling of snow or melting snow. He, his work elicits, and he's out there. Mm-hmm. There's the, the darkness. I mean, he actually, there's a lot of his painting you might express as, as almost muddy, in, in, in its darkness. It's true. And, and yet, uh, they're very engaging. And I think, you know, when you have an artist that brings up so much mystery, uh, and they are far out. I mean, uh-huh. he's dealing with auras, and, and they're kind of, you know, it's, it's funny as you were talking, he's like the dark side of Arthur Dove in some way uh-huh. with these orbital yeah. things. He's uh, Arthur does all about uh, uh, another American painter and contemporary, actually, of uh, Charles Birchfield. But he he's the dark side of it all, you know. Yes. I mean, Charles Birchfield yes. is definitely the dark side yeah. of it all. Well, he was so enigmatic, and and 
and and and just like our other the artist I'm going to talk about now is the French artist Odilon Redon. Redon came from a very wealthy family from Bordeaux, France, that made most of their money in the Louisiana slave trade. And that really gives me chills just thinking about it. His mother was a French Creole from Louisiana, and he was born in 1840, and he died during World War I in 1916 at the age of 76. Redon was not particularly a good student, and he did not pass his exams from the L'Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris, but he did study with the great French academic painter Jean-Léon Jérôme in 1864. After a stint in the army during the Franco-Prussian War, Redon began to produce drawings in charcoal and lithograph of prints which he called the Noir series, Meaning French and black, uh, meaning black and French. Excuse me. By the by, the late 1890s, he ventured into pastels and oils. By 1900, he stopped engaging in the noir series and began his quest into more mystical and surreal works. Although considered a symbolist painter, he is one of the first inspirations to full-blown surrealism and the Dada movements, which started during and after World War One. Redon's work has a very ephemeral quality, airy, atmospheric, and light. Well, his interest in Japanese art paralleled his keen interest in Buddhism and Hinduism. Whether his inspiration came from the tantric art of Buddhism and Hinduism, uh, Redon's work puts an, uh, another puts you in another worldly place and sensibility. His interest in his subjects, which were varied, had taken him into the medium of pastel. And it's here where his subjects of landscapes and flowers are traditionally were not done with pastel at the time, and this really kind of perked up my curiosity. And we have our resident expert on pastel and my dear co-host of the Art Experience radio program, <laughs> Sheila Blake. Sheila, the delicacy of flowers to me, seem really tough to do in pastels. I don't know, am I wrong? The pastel medium presents a variety of challenges in visually communicating flowers, it seems to me. What do you think on that? Well, for me, the quality of flowers, their weight, their translucence, their assembly is extremely challenging, and that's an understatement. Flowers have structure, and they have a also a quality of randomness and lightness. With pastel, I must get all of this. And then, of course, there's the light shining through the petals and the leaves and the shadows cast by everything and always keeping it fresh like a flower. And pastel, the pastel itself is neither of these things. It's a stick of pigment on a piece of paper. Oh, and I forgot about the flower not lasting very long. A hibiscus lasts a day. Right. <laughs> there is a technique that was used by many artists, especially Degas used it with his gauzy costumes, of using pastel on tone paper. Have you, you've talked about this before. Have you done this or done it with I have students? done it, but no, no, my, my students, not at all. But yes, the pastel on tone paper just gives it another quality. Uh huh. It's really important. Yeah, it's lovely. I didn't. I've never used it, but I know about it. So I'm you don't work myself. on a tone paper. Never. Because oh I goodness, like I because the paper, the color of the paper, gives you immediately the color of the shadow, and uh, and and I don't. I like to invent my own shadow colors. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that yeah. process. Yeah. So. Uh, the answer is no. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I, you know, the answer is no, but it's hard enough for beginning students to accurately just do simple forms. Exactly. So flowers it's, and botanical oh subject gosh, are just no. way off the charts. And yes, the answer is no. Well, I included Raidon in this program because his flowers appear in a surreal way and not like all of his paintings, traditional flower paintings. He did do some traditional flower paintings. His clouds look like a bouquet of flowers. His environments have these flower-like auras in the background. His spiritual work subjects seem like apparitions, and there's often flowers in them. And they're direct references to Buddha that have flower-like grounds and are light and airy and mystical. Interestingly enough, 
like many of the symbolist painters, um, they were looking towards mythologies like the Greek, Roman, and Norse ones for inspiration. And they were also interested in classical literature and literary works from people like Shakespeare. So there are several works that Redon did that have flowers in them, but they're not necessarily the main subject, like his uh, a painting called Pandora, or the Cyclops, and a failure among the flowers. And these have a lot of flowers in them, although their titles might not suggest it, except for maybe a failure among the flowers. Yes, Redon did paint flowers in vases on tables in a traditional way, but he takes them in so many other directions. The flowers are more like spirits or, or beautifully light phantasms. They hover in the air, much like Asian depictions of Japanese cherry blossoms that you see, see, but they're never grounded by a trunk of a tree or rooted in the ground. They just float in atmosphere. The masterpiece, Cl Flower Clouds, from 1903, is such an example. The pastel on paper is a cloudscape, and then there's a sailboat in the foreground that looks like some ancient Greek vessel, but it gives it a very surreal quality. And there are other works like nasturtiums and the bouquet of flowers that explode in this abstracted, hazy realm of flora, and they're really interesting. Upon looking at the more traditional vase paintings, Again, he makes his environment backgrounds almost a chaotic array of color with different mark directions in the pastel, and they seem to go counter the organized, beautiful bouquet that's in front of them. So Radon takes us into a surreal space, beyond the real, and many of his works coincidentally include flowers as subjects. I find these works magical and mystical, and they're a definite departure from the Western European models that were around him at the time, so his are much more refreshing and energizing. Odelaridon's work in many ways defy classification, as they maintain an ambiguous quality. Now, some viewers of art find ambiguity in art a weakness, and that's a big debate, you know, how people look at art, but I do not find it a weakness. And sometimes great art can be undefinable and enigmatic. So thanks for listening. Sheila, you know, we've got to get going on this show, this next show. Let's see if we can uh, address Washington's best-kept secret in Tudor Place. Oh, yeah, a Tudor Place. And it has a history related to gardens and paints and botanical subjects. So when the, when the explorers first came to the New World, they anticipated a wealth of flora and fauna that would be new to them, and they weren't disappointed. They saw the vines entwined around the trees and anticipated the excellent wines that these, they could produce with grapes. And they spent fortunes importing wines from Europe and so, which made them highly motivated to produce American wines. But the soil was different, the weather was different, and it took much experimenting, much failure of fortune, and 300 years to finally produce a grape that people could stand to drink. Thomas Jefferson poured fortunes into this venture, and finally Daniel Norton, whom he hired, produced the first cultivar, the Norton Grape. He did this in Virginia and was able to cultivate the vines in Missouri. And that was a wonderful venture for Missouri, but it was cut down during Prohibition and never really recovered there. But still, the wine industry took off from there. And the original vineyard of the Norton Grape in Virginia is still producing wine today. So the, when the first settlers came to America, they were fo focused besides wine, on growing crops like fruits and vegetables to eat and cotton and tobacco to sell. Once these efforts were successful, people had more free time for leisurely activities, so they began paint, planting ornamental horticultural plants like flowers and shrubs. Botanical illustrators were tasked with drawing accurate depictions of plants the phases of their growth, their internal organs for scientific purposes. But artists, being artists, would go beyond that. So they could, what they could see 
was would be to show the spirit of God's creation. And they would pay attention to the bend of the leaf, the curve of the stem, the shape of the petal. But the artist always searched for the essence that defines these, these special beings. And over and above the spiritual engineering, the artists were conscious of the organic principles underlying all living things. And so, as in the 17th century with Dutch still-life paintings, the artists would arrange the bouquets according to whim and beauty without regard to the seasons of the flowers. The American artists, in the spirit of transcendentalism, would emphasize the spirit above the accuracy. There's a special organic energy that invigorates the American flower painting tradition so that in American painting, Flowers embody creationist and evolutionary ideas in one, forcing a quality of life, of growth, and of becoming. Well, see, that's going to all be uh, come to life when we go to Tudor Place. I can't wait. And, and Tudor Place is related to Mount Vernon as well because of the Washington, the famous Washington family's roots in Virginia and also in D.C. Well, thank you for that. Well, if you've just joined us, you're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Program here on WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3. Today we continued our our series on the art of the garden right here. And if you've missed anything, you can go to archives and listen to this radio program at a different time a little later on. And we, we were discussing painters of the garden. Today, Shula and I looked at four artists that visually engaged the Garden, Ellsworth Kelly, Emile Noldi, Adelon Rodant, and Charles Birchfield. These artists found inspiration in the garden, and their passion in the garden was real and beautiful. Well, stay tuned to our most and next exciting programming at WOWD Tacoma Radio. Uh, we have Bobby Hill and Clay Fink at This Music. Bobby and Clay share their incredible knowledge and musical depth with musical programs on Saturdays and every Saturday from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Avant-garde Jazz is right here. And we invite you to listen every other Saturday between 8 and 9 to Robin's Radio. It is an opportunity to listen to the radio of our youth, and it brings out the child in everyone. It's a great show. Lady Murr and Milo are hosting Borderlines on Wednesdays from 10 a.m. to 12 noon. Listen to this interesting selection of musical variety. Listen every other Sunday from 8 to 10 p.m. to our friend Gail Barons and the Night Ride Home. Gail serves an eclectic and selective mix of songs from a host of musical genres. We invite you to go to our website at TacomaRadio.org and look at the program schedule. There's so much fantastic music, talk shows, interviews, community news from so many diverse people at this radio station. And if you get a chance, stay on that website and click the Donate button. Your donations are much appreciated, and we thank you for keeping WOWD Tacoma Radio going. Experience art and the visual in everything you do, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.
Before you leave, still water runs deep And there won't always be someone there 